If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. As we continue in the book of Genesis this morning, we are in Genesis 2. Specifically, we're in verses 1 through 7 this morning. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts... By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed man of the dust from the ground, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Now the book of Genesis is obviously a book about the beginning. And being very near to the beginning of a book that is about the beginning, it should be no surprise then that there are several firsts here in Genesis 2. If you look at the chapter as a whole, you have the the first Sabbath, you have the beginning of man's work, the first covenant or the first law between God and man, the first creation of woman, you have the beginning of marriage. There are a lot of firsts here in Genesis chapter 2. And uh, for our purposes, though, as we're in verses 1 through 7, we're going to be considering... First of all, the Sabbath, and secondly, this, what we find in verse 7, that man became a living being, or man became a living soul. And so those will be our two main points for the sermon this morning. Remember the Sabbath, and man became a living soul. And so verse 1 opens the, the chapter for us and comments on the situation of things after the sixth day of creation. And it tells us this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. As we saw last week in Genesis 1, God did his creative work on those six days, and then came the seventh day. The seventh day is that of which we read in verses 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now this word that is translated for us as rested uh, in both verse 2 and verse 3 is the word Shabbat, from which we get the word Sabbath. And as a verb, it means to cease, to desist, or to rest. And so even though our translators have rendered it as rested, which is a fair translation of the word, we would do well to note that that is not its only connotation. We do well to note 
that it certainly doesn't mean to imply that God rested after creation in the same way that you and I rest after we complete a task. And our brother Stan mentioned this uh, very appropriately uh, before the reading of of Mark chapter 2, that God doesn't cease from divine activity. You and I rest because we get tired. This is not so with the Lord. On the contrary, we find in Isaiah 40, 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not grow weary or become tired? And Though God ceased from his work of creation, he did not, as it were, go on sabbatical in the sense of stepping away from that which he created. Not so. Rather, God is always upholding and sustaining that which he has created. And this was part of Jesus' point in John chapter 5 when he was accused by the Jews of breaking the Sabbath. This is a very running theme through the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is that his opponents and adversaries accused him of breaking the Sabbath. And in uh, John chapter 5, Jesus had healed a, a lame man there by the pool, and he had done so on the Sabbath. And we find this in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now Jesus' point when he said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working, is in essence to say this, God, my Father, works on the Sabbath, and it's okay. And I work on the Sabbath, and it's okay. As stated, Jesus' argument is that whatever it is that justifies the Father working on the Sabbath is the same thing that justifies the Son of God working on the Sabbath. And the argument only works, of course, if Jesus is God. And so the point here is to say that this ceasing or this resting or desisting that is described for us here in Genesis 2, which God did on the seventh day, was not an absolute cessation of divine activity. That could not be. Rather, what is meant is that God ceased from his work of creation. And we're told more, that God blessed the seventh day and that he sanctified it. Now, obviously, there's no explicit command that is given here in Genesis 2, but surely it must mean something, that the Lord God blessed the seventh day and that he sanctified the seventh day. And indeed, that blessing and sanctification does mean something, as the word of God and our Lord Jesus Christ make clear to us. For starters, it's obvious that the Sabbath commandment is part of the Ten Commandments, given to Moses, Mount Sinai, Exodus 20. And what we find there... Exodus 20 is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the fourth commandment there of the ten 
directed the minds of the children of Israel back to creation itself. That in six days the Lord had made the heavens and the earth, and therefore it directed their minds back to this divine pattern of creation. God creating in six days and resting on the seventh day. And thus, from creation itself, there's this divinely given pattern of of work and rest. And I think it's also worthwhile considering that in the restatement of the Ten Commandments as given in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's a further motivation that's given for the observation of the Sabbath. This is Deuteronomy, uh, found in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. And, and in that section we find this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath. And so in Deuteronomy 5, there's this, this second aspect of remembering the Sabbath. It is a commemoration of redemption. God had brought them out of bondage and given them rest from that bondage by his mighty hand and outstretched arm. And the way to remember that redemption for the people of Israel was by keeping the Sabbath. And in connection with this, it is also worth noting, as we did a couple of weeks ago on Sunday evening, as we were in Leviticus 19, that in Exodus 31... Verses 13 through 17, we find that the Sabbath is referred to as a sign between the Lord and the generations of Israel so that they would know that it is the Lord who sanctifies them. The rest of the Sabbath pointed toward the fact that it was the Lord who sanctified his people. They rest from their works as a sign of the Lord's work in sanctifying them making them holy, setting them apart for the Lord. And therefore, it should come as no surprise that the writer to the Hebrews speaks in this way in the New Testament when he says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So there is a a rest for the people of God, and we should be striving to enter into that rest, a rest in which we rest from our works, just as God rested from his works in the creation of the world. So the Sabbath rest, which is so rigidly prescribed under the Mosaic law, directed the people back to this creational pattern of work and rest, It was also a sign to the people of their redemption from Egypt. It was a sign to them of the sanctification that they received from the Lord, that he is the Lord who sanctifies them. It's a sign of the Lord's work for them and in them. And in this way, there was a ceremonial aspect of the the Old Testament Sabbath law that was pointing ahead to our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul speaks of this in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. When he says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So there's a a ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath that's pointing ahead to Christ. It, for the, the people of Israel, was pointing them back to their redemption out of Egypt, and in that way, it was also pointing them forward to an even greater redemption, which 
was yet to come at that point. The redemption of men and women from slavery to sin, slavery to Satan, slavery to death. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accomplished that redemption for us by His death on the cross and His resurrection three days later. And therefore, in the Old Testament times, when the people violated the fourth commandment, they were failing to utilize the God-given means of remembering their own redemption. They were failing to utilize the God-given means of remembering their creation, that God had created them and had given them a day of rest. They were failing to utilize the God-given means that was, or should we say, a God-given means that was pointing them ahead to Christ and to the true spiritual rest that is found in Christ when we trust in Him. As we recognize that our own works are of no value to save us and as we trust in Christ's all-powerful work to save us. And so the Sabbath, you see, is a, is a highly practical reminder for the Old Testament people of, of creation, of our status as creatures and creatures who are in need of rest. And it was a highly practical reminder of their redemption from bondage in Egypt, which was pointing ahead to them for the the rest that was to be found in Christ. And so faithful Sabbath observation in the Old Testament times involved not only a strict cessation of work, but also reverent and thankful remembrance of redemption. And so when when we understand what was being taught and signified in the Sabbath command, we might be able to understand a little bit better why the keeping of the Sabbath would receive so great a reward and why the violation of the Sabbath would be judged so severely by God in the Old Testament times. And as followers of Christ, we're called to rest in Christ, knowing that our salvation has been fully accomplished by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And so let's enter into that rest more knowing that Christ is our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, our everything. But then, practically speaking, what should be our response as Christians to the fact stated here in Genesis 2 that God rested on the seventh day, that he blessed it and sanctified it? Surely God did not bless it and sanctify it for nothing, did he? What should be our response to the fourth commandment? To remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Well, I think for us, we need to keep a couple of things in mind. For one, we need to keep in mind that with the death of Christ on the cross, those aspects of the law that are commonly called ceremonial, those aspects of the Mosaic law that were pointing ahead to Christ, have been abolished. Paul said in Colossians 2 that the Sabbath was a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, there were aspects of the Sabbath commandment that were ceremonial, that were pointing ahead to Christ. But at the same time, there is still a moral and abiding aspect of the Sabbath commandment. Our Lord Jesus tells us, as we heard earlier from Mark 2, that the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, this is something that's for us. This is for our good. This is for our benefit. And so let's, let's not run away from it or throw it overboard completely. And again, there's something, there's something built into the fabric of the world in this from, from creation, that the Lord rested on the seventh day. He blessed it. We, like Bryce, need to rest from our work, not just for the purpose of being idle, but for the purpose of being refreshed and being strengthened. And what is God's way of refreshing and strengthening us 
as Christians? Well, it's to, it's to gather together, to worship God, to hear his word, to worship him in song, and to pray. And thus we see in the New Testament the gathering of the church on the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection. We see believers gathered together on the first day of the week, obviously on, on Easter Sunday, the disciples were there together. But even one week later, as we saw a couple months ago in John, John chapter 20, the, uh, the disciples were, were there gathered together again. We see it in, uh, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. We see it, uh, reference to it in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Revelation 1, 10, is, it is explicitly called the Lord's Day. And so just as the, the Sabbath was to be observed in remembrance of, of the redemption from Egypt that the Lord had wrought for the Old Testament Israelites, Christians now set aside the Lord's Day in remembrance of the redemption that is ours in Christ, a far greater redemption, redemption from slavery to sin, Satan, and death. And therefore we read in Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, the necessity of gathering with the church for our own spiritual benefit. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. point is, we can't forsake our assembling together if we want to be spiritually healthy. I need you to stimulate me to love and good deeds. You need other Christians to stimulate you toward love and good deeds. And what this means practically is that we have to set aside time to gather together. Right? We're all busy. We've got plenty of things to do. And if we're not intentional about setting aside time to gather with, with God's people, to, to worship God together and to be built up in our faith, we will easily be distracted to the detriment of our souls. And so what all of this points to, again, is an abiding validity to the fourth commandment in regard to rest and worship. We need to put a stop to our own work. We need to also put a stop to our own recreation so that we can truly be refreshed and have the opportunity to worship God. And we, we sum this up in our confession of faith when we say that we believe that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day or Christian Sabbath and is to be kept sacred to religious purposes by abstaining from all secular labor except for duties of necessity and mercy and distracting recreations by the devout observance of all means of grace, both public and private, and by preparation for that rest that remains for the people of God. And so we, we set aside this day to, to worship God and also to prepare for our eternal rest. It's a day upon which we ought to be remembering our redemption. We celebrate the first day of the week as the Lord's Day, which is the day of Christ's resurrection, the day of Christ's victory. It was the day on which he was raised to life for our justification. And so as we gather, we're gathered today, let's remember our redemption. As we gather from week to week, let's remember our redemption in Christ. And as we're able, this should be a time when we, when we step back from our own work and even from our own diversions that would distract us from coming to church and worshiping God. We have to set those things aside and come together to worship God, to hear his word, and to be built up in Christ. And this is a good thing, and we desperately need this. One modern writer has referred to the Sabbath as the antithesis of our 
hyper-stimulated culture. We can get so busy and so wrapped up in all kinds of other activities. Sometimes this is a good thing. Sometimes it's not a good thing. We have jobs and school and sports and these things that consume our time and our energy. And so we need data to step back and to be refreshed in remembering our redemption and resting in the Lord. Now, to be sure, some Christians have given a long list of what must or must not be done on the Lord's Day. I think it was John Owen who said something to the effect that, uh, that the Lord's Day itself was not long enough to read the list of what should be done on the Lord's Day or what should not be done on the Lord's Day, something to, to that effect. So I'm not, I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list today. I think, uh, I think the Reformed theologian Francis Turretin was, was helpful when he spoke in this regard. Uh, he said, Therefore, we do not think that believers are bound to Judaical precision, which some maintain was not revoked, so that it is lawful neither to kindle a fire nor to cook food nor to take up arms against an enemy, nor to prosecute a journey begun by land or sea, nor to refresh themselves with innocent relaxation of the mind and body, provided these are done out of the hours appointed for divine worship, nor to have any diversion, however slight, to, all, to any things belonging to the advantages of this life. So in other words, he's saying some people would say, all of these things are forbidden on the Sabbath. Turretin says, I don't think so. And he goes on, he says, For although this opinion bears on its face a beautiful appearance of piety, still it labors under grievous disadvantages, nor can it be retained without in this way bringing back into the church and imposing anew upon the shoulders of Christians an unbearable yoke, repugnant to Christian liberty and the gentleness of Christ and opposed to the sweetness of the covenant of grace by agitating and tormenting the consciences of men. So I'm not here today to agitate and torment your conscience by giving you a long list of rules for the Lord's Day, but I am telling you that the Lord's Day is important, that it's important for your soul, for your well-being. You need to rest. You need to remember your redemption. You need to gather with the church so that we can worship God, so that we can, t- can stimulate one another towards love and good deeds, and that these are the ordinary ways by which the Lord builds us up as, uh, as Christians. There was uh, one writer that I read several years ago, and I think, I think he, he might have hit the nail right on the head when he said that, that we all, uh, some, something to the effect that we all underestimate how much we need to gather with the church to go on believing in the Lord for one more week. We're, we're weak people. We need the gathering of God's people to, to stimulate us so that we can walk in faith, to, uh, faith and faithfulness to our Lord Jesus Christ. And on our Lord's Days here, we have many opportunities to do those things. We have our main regular gathering here at 1045. We also have Sunday school where we can hear the Word of God or Christian doctrine being taught. We have an evening service which we specifically set aside time to pray for the needs of our church or those whom we know or have connection with. We uh, also hear the Word again. And we have Awana on Sunday night for the children where they can commit uh, scripture to memory and learn the truths of God's word. And, and surrounding all of those things, surrounding Sunday school or morning worship or our evening uh, services here on the Lord's Day, we have the opportunity to be together and talk to one another and to pour into one another's lives. It does my heart good when I see 
people who socially have very little in common, but yet here at church, they, they talk to one another. They spend time together, and they're pouring into one another's lives. It does my heart good to see a teenager talking to someone 60 or older. It does my heart good to see someone 60 or older talking to a teenager or to a child. We need one another in Christ. And this is what Christian fellowship looks like in the local church on the Lord's Day. It's a good thing. And so... As we, as we think about the first Sabbath and the ordinance of the Sabbath here in Genesis 2, let's learn from it that we need to remember the Lord's Day. Let's be careful how we spend the day. Let's use it as a means for our good. Let's use it as a means of grace. Let's hear the Word of God proclaimed. Let's come to the Lord's table when, uh, when the Lord's Supper is served. We'll, uh, let's rejoice when we see a baptism taking place here on the Lord's Day. The other stuff in our lives most often can wait. I understand there are exceptions, right? Cases of necessity and mercy. But for the most part, the other things can wait. On the day when you see Christ, you will not regret the Lord's days that you have spent remembering your redemption and your deliverance from bondage. And so may we all learn to rest more and more in Christ. Even today, let's learn to rest more in Christ, who is the one who sanctifies us, to whom uh, toward whom the Sabbath day was pointing. And so that brings us then to, uh, to our second point for this morning, which is the man became a living soul. Now we, we've seen the, uh, the ordinance and institution of the, the Sabbath there in verses uh, 1 through 3. And in what immediately follows, there is a, a division in the text. When we read in verse 4, this is the account, or more literal translation would be, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. I think we should see this kind of language as tipping us off that what follows is a new block of material. That phrase, these are the generations of, is a phrase that that crops up in the book of Genesis from time to time and often denotes that a new section is about to come. And so you see something like this in chapter 5, verse 1, which shows the lineage from Adam to Noah. You see something similar in chapter 6, verse 9, when we begin reading about Noah and his sons and the construction of the ark and the coming of the flood. You see it in chapter 10, verse 1, as the text transitions from the narrative about Noah to the narrative about his descendants leading up to the Tower of Babel. This phrase, these are the generations of, seems to point to a, a new section that is about to unfold. And in what follows, what we find is a, is a zooming in that gives us more details about creation. Now, it's a bit difficult to nail down exactly what is being communicated in verse 5. It seems likely that this is meant to fill out the idea that has begun in verse 4. And I think the King James Version does a good, uh, good and helpful job both in translating verse 5 and also showing the connection uh, between verse 4 and verse 5. And so the King James um, renders verses 4 and 5 this way. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, 
For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. Now I realize King James translated it a little bit different than some of our modern translations do, but in my estimation, I think the King James is following the Hebrew more closely there, and that uh, the King James Version is also giving the sense that was contained in the Septuagint and in the, and in the Vulgate uh, translations of the Old Testament. Now as to the meaning of verse 5, I would lean toward the opinion of Calvin, John Gill, and Martin Chemnitz that what's being communicated here is that when God first created the plants on the third day, these plants came about in a very different way than they subsequently did. On the third day, the Lord simply said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And so on day three, the plants grew by divine power, by the word of God, not according to natural processes that would later take place. As uh, Martin Chemnitz summarized the situation, he said, Previously, no herb had grown on the earth. That is, no seeds had been planted before this time. There had been no rain to make the ground fertile. There had been no man to prepare the ground by his labors. The sun, moon, and stars had not yet been established. Those came about day four. But yet, when God merely spoke, the earth brought forth herbs which bloomed. Thus it is manifest that for a far different reason than the physical, the growing things of the earth were made on the third day. Verse 6 continues to describe the condition on the earth at that time by saying, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Now, verse 6 is commonly understood as the way in which the earth was watered prior to the first rain which the Lord sent upon the earth. Though it is worth pointing out that some older commentators do point out the verse could be understood as a continuation of the negative vein which had proceeded in verse 5. That is to say, the Hebrew does allow for the possibility that the situation described here is such that, according to verse 5, there had been no rain, There had been no man to cultivate, and verse 6 could continue that negation, nor even, at the point described here, had a mist risen up to water the whole surface of the ground. It can be a little bit tricky to pin down exactly what Moses is, uh, is trying to convey here. I think one writer was absolutely correct to say that it's fascinating to speculate about the pre flood environment. However, we should use caution in making absolute statements about that environment as there are many things about the pre-flood world that we cannot know with certainty. And so as we, as, we, as we try to think and try to reconstruct what the world was like between creation and the flood, we need to, to use the scriptural data that's there, but we need to, we need to use uh, great caution and care uh, because there's a lot of things that we can't nail down with certainty. There's a lot of things about it that the Word of God does not tell us. Any theories that we formulate need to be in line with Scripture, but I think we need to hold those theories a little bit loosely because not everything is stated to us in Scripture as to what that pre-flood environment looked like. And then in verse 7, we come to a a more specific description of the creation of man. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and man became a living being, or more literally, man became a living soul. Now this, this is significant. This is a step in the creation of man which is different from that of the animals. With respect to the creation of other creatures, we find that God created him with his word and that they became living creatures or living souls as in the case of the, the sea creatures and the birds in Genesis 1, 20 and 21 and in the case of the cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. But here, here by contrast, the Lord formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life. This is the formation of what is called the rational soul. This is that by which mankind is not only able to perform the same life functions along with the animals, but deeper things also. Things like thinking, reasoning, speaking to one another, and so on. Now, I understand that animals can think and learn and can remember what they have been taught and can communicate in various ways. I certainly do not deny that. But at the same time, the rest of the animal kingdom does not think or reason or process or communicate at the same level that we do as humans. There is a, there is a difference. And we should note here the creation of both the material and the immaterial part of man. The material, the body, is formed first, formed from the dust of the ground, and then comes the, the immaterial, the soul, created by the very breath of God when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. The crown of God's creation was not merely created by the speaking of God, but as we see here, by his action and craftsmanship and breath, it was the creation of man, the creation of man in this way was unique. By use of these means, God created man in his own image. And the account of Adam's creation here is, is both humbling and dignifying. It is humbling in that the man was created out of the dust out of the dust of the earth. It's dignifying in that God breathed his breath into Adam, our first forefather. And of course, when Adam was consigned to die after his fall into sin, he was consigned to return to the ground. For he was dust, and to dust he would return, as we see later in Genesis 3.19. And this is what Solomon describes in the death of man in Ecclesiastes 12.7, when he says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave us, God who gave it. The, the physical and material part of us at death will return to the ground, will decay. In the language of the prayer book and the funeral services, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Unfortunately, we know what it is to live in a world of sin and death, a world in which death has come because of sin. Eve was the first to eat of the fruit, and Adam followed her lead, and we are born of their descendants, born fallen, born in sin, and as such we stand guilty. And therefore we live in a world in which our bodies, though fearfully and wonderfully made, 
will return to the dust from which they were taken. But that is not the end. That's not the, the end of the story. The immaterial part will live on at death, either in the presence of God in great joy or under the wrath of God. And the return to dust is not the end of our physical bodies either because our physical bodies will be raised at the last day when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. And that's why Paul drew that comparison between the first Adam and Christ, the last Adam, in 1 Corinthians 15 as we read that together for our unison reading. And so he begins by quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when he says, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. He's quoting, quoting from our text here, Genesis 2, 7. He goes on, he says, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And in drawing that connection as he does, Paul is showing us that as sinners, we bear the earthy image of the first Adam. We are sinners, and assuming we die before Christ returns, our bodies will return to the earth just as Adam's did. But thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ, that in him there is resurrection. Jesus Christ has the power of indestructible life. He's the Son of God who came down from heaven and was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh with a true human body and human soul and yet was without sin. And therefore, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he was able to take our sin upon himself and die there as a punishment in our place. And because he is the Son of God, he rose from the grave victoriously victorious over sin and Satan and death three days later. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised again for our justification. And he brings forgiveness of sins and righteousness to all who will turn away from their sins and trust in him. And thus Paul can say, as he does in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And thus he says later on in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that our Lord Jesus Christ is a life-giving spirit. Christ gives life to the dead. He gives spiritual lives to souls that are dead and are helpless in their sin. And at his return, he will give life to our dead bodies. We will be raised. In fact, the bodies of all will be raised. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Now those who are raised to everlasting life will find that what is mortal is swallowed up by life. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.4, this is life which is life indeed. This is life eternal. But those who are raised to everlasting contempt are actually raised again to an everlasting death. Now, what makes, what makes the difference between the two? 
What makes the difference between a resurrection to life on the one hand and a resurrection to judgment on the other hand? The difference is faith in Christ. Jesus himself says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. The first Adam became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now all of us currently bear the image of the first. We are earthy like the man of earth. As such, we, like Adam, have the image of God within us. That gives every one of us dignity. But just as Adam fell, we too are fallen. We bear his image in that as well. And that gives every one of us cause for shame and for grief. But the good news of the gospel is that though we are fallen in Adam, Christ has come, has lived, and has died and risen again so that we may bear his image, that we may live eternally. And it's my prayer that everyone here, everyone who hears these words this morning, would believe in Christ and would pass out of death and into life, and so bear the image of the man from heaven, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, and we thank you for the way in which your word shows us how even a passage about the creation of Adam in becoming a living soul, points us ahead to Christ, that Christ became that life-giving spirit, that last Adam by which all who trust in him may have eternal life. Father, we are thankful for the redemption that is ours in Christ. And Father, on this Lord's Day and all Lord's Days for the rest of our lives, we pray that we would joyously remember this great redemption which we have in Christ who lived and died and rose again for us. We praise you for his victory. We ask that you would strengthen us, that you bless us this week, help us to love you and serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.